0: Well, Aaron wrote that song. Can we say thank you to him? And it's uh, taken right out of our text for our study this morning. If you have your Bible, open with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Um, my family and I, over our um, Christmas and New Year holiday, had the chance to get away after a few days after Christmas, and we went up to a cabin in the mighty metropolis of Hot Sulphur Springs, and um, my, my whole side of the family was there, we were gathered, we had a great time, and We had planned this breakfast for uh, New Year's Day, and it was a a pancake breakfast, and there was no shortage of text messages that came back and forth about the kind of pancakes we were going to eat, oatmeal pancakes, banana pancakes, and, and, and there was probably five or six text messages that I politely opted out of, but that were sent back and forth nonetheless about this pancake breakfast. And so we got up and... Uh, we we made the pancakes with sleep in our eyes and deprivation in our soul because we had stayed up past midnight to celebrate the new year. Anybody with me, that that takes it out of you now, okay? Yeah. And so we made all these pancakes, and we were flipping the flapjacks and keeping them warm in the oven, and we had them all ready, and um, we started to put them out, and somebody in my family says, did anybody bring the syrup? It was like that scene in Christmas Vacation where they hike into the woods and they find the perfect tree and are reminded that they forgot the saw, right? Um, And so here's the question. Here's the question. What do you do when you have a pancake breakfast prepared and you forget the syrup, right? So so here's the options. This is um, three options. You try to make syrup out of something else, okay? You don't eat the pancakes, or you eat the pancakes plain, okay? Um, now, here's what I want you to do. Just take a second and tell the person who's sitting next to you, or around you, which option you would choose. Ready, go. Which option would you choose? You wait, you hold on. Which number? All right here's my theory. And I just talked to somebody who chose number three. Um, in my opinion, number three is the only non-option, okay? <laughs> it's the only non-option. You, you, you cannot eat pancakes plain. They taste... Anybody? Who's with me? Come on. Who's with me? You, <laughs> They taste disgusting. You're like, what is this? And here's the thing, here's the thing. You don't notice it when you put syrup on it because syrup makes it all better. It covers a multitude of sins, okay? <laughs> a little butter. To my, my only option is, non-option, is to eat the pancakes plain. You can't do it. You can't do it. Why? Because syrup is what makes the pancakes. The only reason we have pancakes is so that we can get syrup into our mouth, I want to talk to you about syrup this morning, (laughs) about the one thing that changes everything, that with it, everything falls into place, and without it, nothing else matters. If you have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 2, you'll remember, maybe if you were here last week, that we're starting a series and we're journeying through the first few chapters of Revelation where where Jesus is writing through the Apostle John to specific churches in his day. And he's giving them um, encouragement. He's writing to the context that they're in uniquely. And he's got a a word both of condemnation or, or, or commendation, of correction, and of instruction for the churches that he writes to. And listen as he begins these letters with a letter to the church at Ephesus. He says this. Did the angel of the church in Ephesus write? To the words of him who holds the seven stars, the one who who rules the cosmos, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, last week we we saw Jesus lifted up, we saw Jesus reigning above, we saw Jesus advocating for, and we saw Jesus walking among the churches, and and John wants to reiterate that as he writes to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus. And Ephesus was this city that was um, one of the preeminent cities in this region of Asia Minor in the ancient world. If you were to walk down the streets of Ephesus in 90 AD when John is writing this letter, you would have seen a number of things. But you also would have known your history because the the church at Ephesus had a rich history history. It was, it was begun by the Apostle Paul as he walked into this city and he met different people and he saw demons cast out and he saw um, jailers freed. He saw, he saw amazing things happen in the city of Ephesus. And this church was planted by Paul himself, but it had history, it had attachment, it was attached to people like Timothy, who Paul writes to, Aquila and Priscilla spent time there, John even went back to live there, and and he sort of used Ephesus as his hub, as a way to pastor and reach all these other churches in the region. In fact, tradition would tell us that, that Ephesus was where the Apostle John came to live with Mary, Jesus' mother, after he began to care for her. It's the place that the Apostle Paul spent more time than he spent anywhere else. So, for Over three years, he spent ministering in the city of Ephesus. You can see it's sort of down on, uh, on the ocean or on the sea, and it's, uh, it was the greatest harbor in all of Asia, the biggest harbor, which meant that it was also one of the wealthiest cities, merchants coming in and going out. One Roman writer says that the city of Ephesus was the light of all of Asia, But it was also home not only to a church that was birthed around 40 years before Jesus writes this letter through John to this church, but it was also a city that was rampant with um, idolatry and worship of pagan gods. Um, Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis. Will you say that with me? Artemis. Yeah, she was one of these Greek gods, and Artemis was the god of hunting, so you could often see her with her bow and arrow pulled back. But she was also the god of, goddess of fertility and of children, and ironically, the goddess of virginity, too. I mean, I don't know how you put all those things together. That's a lot for one woman to carry, but nonetheless. And Artemis was worshipped all around the world at this point in time. People would come and flock to Ephesus in order to pay their tribute to this goddess. The the temple was 425 feet long. It was 220 feet um, wide. It had columns, 120 columns that were each 60 feet tall. I mean, can you imagine what it might have been like to come and to worship in this place? And Ephesus was also home to the temple of Domitian. There's a number of cities in the ancient Roman world that bid on the ability to create and build the temple where the emperor would be worshiped. And Ephesus, they, they won that bid. Tells you something about their political landscape, does it not? Well, Ephesus was also, as we said, sort of a, um, a bustling town, and it was filled with overachievers. They had hot and cold running water. They had a temple, or they had a a theater that seated 25,000 people. Can you imagine what it might have been like to go there? They also had um, a library built shortly after John writes this letter, but it tells you something about Ephesus, one of the, the greatest libraries in the ancient world, probably only eclipsed by the library in Alexandria. And if you were to walk in the market, you would have held a coin in your hand. Unique to Ephesus that had a a picture of a honeybee on it for two reasons. One is the the temple prostitutes who serviced people at the temple of Artemis were considered to be the priestesses. They were honeybees. But also, Ephesus prided itself on being a hard-working, fast-charging city. They were busy bees, if you will. And their money proved it. So when Jesus writes to this church uniquely, after roughly 40 years of being a church and trying to follow the way of Jesus in a a city like Ephesus, there's some things that he wants to say to them. There's some instruction that he wants to give them. And I think as we listen to what he says to them, there might be some things that he wants to say to us. Yeah? Let's ask. Here's the way this passage continues. I know your works and your toil. Now, just a quick time out. This word toil means it's the, the most emphatic way you can say that you're trying to get something done in the original Greek language. So it's you're putting your heart, your sweat, your soul, and your mind into accomplishing this. I know your toil. And your patient endurance, it's this word in the Greek, it uh, uh, which means that you live under the weight of something and you continue to move forward. Man, you're working your hands to the bone and you're remaining under the weight of all the outside things that are pushing in, the temple of Artemis and the temple of Domitian and your busy bee society. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. It was commanded by Paul to the elders at Ephesus that they would do this. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20. And found them to be false. Man, you are sniffing out the heretic and you are kicking them out of the church. Good work. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Good deeds, check. Good discipline, check. Good doctrine, check. Good determination, check. I got it all. I mean, at this point... Ephesus church, the Ephesian church might be going, well, where's the confetti? Right? Like, let's raise our glasses. We are nailing this thing. Praise the Lord. And make no mistake about it. All of these things are really, really good things. In fact, all of these things are very, very commanded things. They're things they're told they have to do. But they're pancakes, The pancake without the syrup—they're they, they're not a whole lot of good. Which is why Jesus then follows it with this one word, um, this huge short word, but, but, like you've stuck the dismount on all of these things, but you're in the wrong event. <laughs> Without it, without this one thing, everything else sort of falls to the wayside. Nothing else really matters if you don't get this one thing. It's the, it's the syrup for the pancakes, if you will. It's this word in the Greek, it's this word Allah, which means it's setting a contrast. It's like a, an emphatic conjunction, like, okay, you did all these great things, but, but. I have this against you, which you never want to hear. I mean, it's like Jesus saying, look up at me. Write this down. Don't miss this. I have this against you. I died for you, and I have this against you. I walk among you, and I've got this against you that you've abandoned. you've, You've walked away from the what? The love you had at first. The the love that you had for God, the love that you had for others, the the love that defined you, the love that shaped you, the, the love that you held to as the greatest command, somehow got on the same level as everything else. And Jesus goes, Okay, so here is words, Here is his passion, but also here is his love and saying, I've, I've got this against you. There's this sickness of heart. There's this cancer that you can't see that's eventually going to kill you. You've grown cold. Yeah, may, maybe they lost their love for evangelism. Maybe they lost their love for a lot of other things. But, but before they lost their love for anything else, they, they lost their love for other people and they lost their love for God. And here's what we start to learn about the way that Jesus is calling us to live in this world is that God didn't create us to be duty-driven robots. He designed us to be passionately loving people. In fact, would you just say that with me? Would you, could we say that together as a church? And, 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 and let's say it with a, with a sort of a mirror down in our soul to say, are we just duty-driven or are we passionately loving? Let's say it together. God did not create us to be duty-driven robots. He designed us to be passionately loving people. So when God calls us to himself, the songs that we sang, to, oh my goodness, I stand amazed <laughs> that you would love someone like me. Why in the world does he redeem you and I? Is it so that we would have good deeds, good doctrine, good discipline, good, there's another D, I forgot what it was, but all those good things, that's part of the story. He he wants us to live as a light on the hill. He wants us to hold to things that are true and to shape our lives around reality, not some farce that's a lie that is like an weight around our shoulders that's all true but more than anything else he loves us so that we might love him and others in return that's at the heart of it all i love the way that c.s lewis said it when he said every christian would agree that a man's spiritual health or person's spiritual health is exactly proportionate to his love for god I think part of what happened might be that, that they confused the gospel with the response to the gospel, and they started to worship the response rather than the news itself. This passage hit me afresh this week as I was thinking about the absolute um, astounding nature of the statement that Jesus is making. You've probably heard it. Um, you may have heard it at a wedding. You may have, have read it in a renewal of a vow or something, but listen to what Paul says. the church at Corinth. He says this, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, so, so I have wisdom from below and wisdom from above, and what I'm saying is true. But I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Did you know that whether or not people actually hear the words you say is not solely determined by the content of what you say, but the affection and the heart with which you say it. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and knowledge, and I have all faith as so to remove mountains, it's a lot of faith, but I have not love, say it with me, church, I'm nothing. He goes, hey, you want to have influence? And we think that influence comes from, oh, our understanding and our knowledge and faith that can move mountains. He goes, oh, come on, come on, come on. You want to have influence? Love. Love. doesn't matter what else you do. If you don't love, you're nothing. If I give away all that I have, man, that's generous. And if I deliver my body to be burned, that's martyrdom. But I have not love. I what? gained nothing. gained nothing. So here's the deal, friends. I, I spent a lot of time trying to think through, why in the world, how, 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 how could this happen to a church like Ephesus? And I, and I also wanted to ask the question, how can this happen to a person like me? How, how can this happen to a person like you? There, there's two things that stood out to me. One is, one is time. Have you ever noticed the way that, that consistency has the ability to erode curiosity? Uh, or that faithfulness has the unique ability to erode wonder? Like, I've done a number of weddings, I love doing weddings, and I've seen people stand in front of each other with this gaze, sort of puppy dog look in their eyes, right? And they pledge their devotion and they make a commitment and they enter into a covenant and, and every wedding I do now, I encourage people to just pause and to remember that the magnificence of this moment will one day be Normal. You don't have to say amen, I can just see it in your eyes. <laughs> that you'll wake up next to each other the next morning, and that'll be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I get to wake up to this, next to this person that I love, and we don't have to say goodbye anymore, and we don't have to talk on the phone anymore, praise Jesus, and, and, we. and one day it'll become normal. Why? Because consistency erodes passion over time. But here's the other thing that happened to the Ephesian church, I think. It doesn't say explicitly, but, but I think the other thing that they were living in was a society where they had to continually fight for their faith. And they were pressed in on every side, it says, and they walked through pain. And sometimes when you're walking through pain, you do everything you can just to make it through. One foot in front of the other. And it's a coping mechanism. We just shut down places of our hearts so that we can continue to make it. And they made it. Good discipline, good deeds, good doctrine, good determination. They they made it. But they lost a piece of what made them. Pain and time have the unique ability to turn us into duty-driven robots because loving... Over time, when it's so consistent, God's faithfulness and love is so consistent, can, can, we can lose sight of it, or maybe it's just walking through pain, and we just got to get through it. But man, can I encourage you? Maybe you write this down, that affections, our affections determine the effectiveness of our actions. Our affections determine the effectiveness of our actions, so here's what I want to do over the next few minutes. I just want to dive in and say, all right, how might this have happened? Let's dive into the drift and dissect. How does it happen for them and how might it happen for us? Here, here's the first thing that probably happens for the Ephesian church is good things supersede ultimate things. Good things supersede ultimate things. Man, had heresy hunting killed love? <laughs> had hard work for God substituted life with God was orthodoxy achieved at the expense of fellowship even. I don't know if the B symbolizes not just Ephesus but the Ephesian church, but I think a lot of us can relate to this idea of good things superseding ultimate things because we live in a busy society and a busy culture, don't we? And it can be easy to fill our life with as many things as we want to fill our life with. I mean, you ask somebody now, how are you doing? The response used to be, good, how are you? And now it's, busy, how are you? And I've had to remind myself that the busy life is not necessarily the productive life, number one. That busyness and productivity are two very different things. But also, that the busy life is the distracted life. Because we're just letting everything push in on us, and everything becomes important. And if everything's important, nothing is. And I think that might be what happened to the Ephesian church. They got busy. They got busy being the church. They got busy doing church. And man, I don't know about you, but in taking kids to sporting events and, and may, maybe it's uh, going, even going to things at church or going to things in your neighborhood or working, your bo- working to the bone in order to keep things afloat financially, can it be easy to lose our heart? In a noisy world, maybe just maybe, let me throw out a practice that you could do this week. If this is, if this is something that you wrestle with, maybe this week. You choose one day, and you take a media fast day, and you say, I'm I'm just going to quiet the noise, and and I'm going to try to get back to the things that God's inviting me to, that that stir my soul, that that feed my soul. The ancient Hebrews had this way of doing it. Every morning and every evening, they would say the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God, every morning, Every evening, these are the anchors and the bookends in their life. This is what we're about. We're about loving God. Maybe we need those same bookends. Here's the second thing that happens. Religiosity supplants or takes over intimacy. Religiosity supplants intimacy. Intimacy. And what happens is we move towards religiosity because it's a lot easier to control God than it is to connect with God. So let me, let me say that again, because I think that's important for us. It's a lot easier to control God than it is to connect with God. And there's two ways that I've seen myself at least, and maybe, maybe you've seen yourself in this as well. Try to control God. Or maybe it's even control God and the people around us. Here's trap number one. It's called the performance trap. And that's what religion tells us. That's what religiosity tells us. It's, it's perform. Do, do all the things. Good deeds, good doctrine, good discipline, good determination. Yes! Triple axle and he sticks it. Perform. Religion says perform and produce. Jesus says abide and rest. You can have one or the other as the focus of your life, but you you cannot have both. But here's what we do. We use religiosity and we use performance as a way to protect ourselves. Because the question in the back of our mind is, am I good enough? Do I add up? And so we protect ourselves from pain. We protect ourselves from being let down by others. And if we can play the part, no one has to see our heart. Right? Right? See, here's the thing you want a litmus test? We know we've fallen prey to performance when we'd rather be praised than known. We know we've fallen prey to performance when we'd rather be praised than known. I mean, listen to the way that Jesus talks to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors, you performers. You're, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead man's bones and uncleanliness. So also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. His, his invitation is just drop the mask. Just drop the mask. But there's a performance trap, but also there's the programmed trap, right? And this is the approach to faith that says, if it works for me, it should work for everyone else. So here's what you do. You just plug into the equation. Well, if you would get up every morning and read your Bible for a half hour, well, then you would fill in the blank. Works for me. So it should work for everyone else. But here's the deal, friends, the spiritual journey that you and Jesus and the people around you get to walk is as unique as every person in this room. That there's some things we can put in place, certainly, that the Bible invites us to have in our life, but the reality is that you're going to connect with God a little bit differently than I do, and that's okay. we just got to keep the end in mind, and the end is Jesus, it's, it's why Jesus will say to the Pharisees, oh, come on, come on, come on. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, and you, yet you re- refuse to come to me to have life. So here's what Jesus is saying. Look up at me for just a second. You can read all the Bible you want, but if you don't have the right goal in mind, it will not do you any good. And he's going, it points to me. In fact, the longer you go in on this just study, just study, just study, just study, probably the colder you get because the invitation is to him. Here's the third reason. We forget the why behind the what. We forget the why behind the what. Simon Sinek did a a, a TED Talk a number of years ago. I believe it was in 2009 called um, Start With Why that has had 25 million views over the last number of years because he's hitting on something that's transcendent within all of us, we know that we should begin asking the question, why? But that it's so easy to just land on what, right? Hey, let, let me just push back, push on you a little bit. You know that it's easy to go home without being home, right? And we forget the Why? We disconnect, we disengage. We know that it's easy to physically be in a place without actually being present there, don't we? We forget the why behind the what. That's a great question to ask. Every time you walk through these doors, why am I here? Why am I here? Why gather on a weekly basis? Why build this into the rhythm of my life and my soul? Why am I, why am I here? We know, we know. That it's easy to have a child. It's not easy to be a parent. There's a why behind the what, and sometimes we lose sight of it, don't we? So if you're going, "Hey, well, Paulson, I, I'm maybe, maybe that's me." Let me just here's a litmus test for you. How do we know if we've maybe drifted to the same place that the Ephesian church drifted? Well. Is it it hard for you to experience joy? Maybe you've drifted. Are silence and solitude things that you avoid like the plague rather than pursue like a lifeline? Can you go through a worship time like we had this morning and be untouched and unmoved? Do you find yourself resistant and exhausted by times of serving rather than seeing that you're connected to the greater mission that God is inviting you to live? Do you feel underappreciated, unappreciated, maybe a little bit bitter, a little bit cynical, a little bit judgmental? Do you see people in need and remain unmoved by it? I think maybe what happened with the Ephesian church is they were far more interested in being right than they were about being loving. And something happens over time. People become a problem to solve rather than an invitation to step into. They, they drifted. They drifted. And so Jesus doesn't just hang him out to dry and go like, you should try harder and do better. He says, he gives them very specific instruction. So remember, commendation, good deeds, good doctrine, good discipline. One more in there. Um, and then, all right, condemnation. You've you've left your love. You've left the love you have at first, and then instruction. Remember, therefore, from which you've fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He gives them three things to do. And we're going to press into these today. We're going to end our service by, I'm going to invite you at the end of our service to just, I, I want this, I'm inviting you to say, God, would you move? Would you fall afresh on me? Let's not just sing it. Come on, let's, let's, let's open ourselves up to it because I think there's probably some of us who we need to go through this process. If we can admit, man, I've grown cold, God will meet us in that place. But if we continue to wear the masks, We'll continue to hold him at an arm's length. Here's what he says first. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Ephesian church, remember? Remember when you'd like take your scrolls and you'd take your idols and you like, you burned them. Thousands of dollars worth of scrolls and idols burned in the city streets because you were so ferociously passionate about Jesus. Somehow great programs replaced passionate faith. Remember I just sensed God saying to me this week, Ryan, remember when you used to walk onto high school campuses unashamedly and share Jesus with whomever you made eye contact with? Remember that? I have this old NIV study Bible. I got it out this week just to look at it and smell it to remember what it was like as an 18-year-old, graduated from high school student to just Fall in love with Jesus at my morning table, the house that I grew up in, man. What was it for you? You remember? And he says, okay, repent. Repent. It's a change of mind. There's maybe some baggage you picked up along the way. Like maturity means boring. Right? Right? Like, oh, okay, so in order to be mature, I have to leave the joy that I had at first. I've got to become, like, polished and professional, and I've got to have it all together. Right, right, right. Repent of that. It's from the pit of hell. It's a change of mind. It's a, we've, we've maybe through time and maybe through, because of pain, we've started to carry some baggage that Jesus didn't intend us to carry. This is a beautiful word. Let me tell you why. It means because however cold you've grown, there's an invitation home. However cold you've grown, there's an invitation home. So change your mind. And then Jesus says, okay, those things that you used to do, do them again. Whatever those were, do them again. So maybe this week, maybe this week, you just take some time and you think back through, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you think back through, what were some of those things? Maybe you flip back through an old Bible or an old journal and you go, what was going on inside of me when I first started to walk with you? Maybe you ask some people who you were journeying with during that season of your life, what did, what did you see in me when I first met Jesus? They may say, oh man, I saw somebody who was legalistic, and I saw someone who's struggling, and can I just say, you don't wanna go back to that place? Okay? But maybe there are some beautiful things that they saw, and maybe you just take a, a few minutes this week and you write down some of those things. But maybe God's inviting you to repent, to change your mind to change your mind from playing religious games rather than walking with the person of Jesus. If that's you, can I encourage you, maybe this week, choose not to embellish the truth in order to make yourself look better. We do this all the time. Maybe we drop a little thing in about how well we're doing. or whatever. You know, We do this all the time. Maybe you choose this week. I'm going to think through that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go there this week maybe people have become a problem to solve rather than an invitation from God to step into. What if this week you found one way to generously express care to somebody who's different than you? Maybe even someone who's frustrating to you. Maybe somebody who you've walked past for the last however many weeks because generosity is one distinction of being a loving person, loving God Loving others. Or maybe this is mine. Maybe this week it's, you share your love for Jesus with somebody. Just rejecting just having a private faith. And it doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be awkward. If it's real for you, it'll come out in a real way. Which one is it? Here's the way Jesus closes this letter. Yet, yeah, you have this. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I hate also. We'll talk about who they are in a few weeks. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who fights against the tendency to grow cold, who stokes their spiritual fire through remembering, repenting, and redoing to those people, the overcomers, he says. I will grant to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, now, just really quick and we're going to land the plane. Um, the Ephesians would have seen a tree of life as something that was in the temple of Artemis. They had trees of life. They were trees of salvation. They were trees of hope. There was a deification of these trees. And Jesus has a sort of play on images. You want to go to that tree? Or do you want to go to the eternal life tree? He's going, I, that's, that's my tree. In Revelation 22, it says that that, that tree, the, the leaves of it are, are healing for all the nations. So this is Jesus's invitation. return, return. Return to your first love because with love without love nothing else really matters but with love everything else falls into place i'm going to have aaron come out and lead us in a in a song we're going to we're going to pray it um and we're going to ask god to stir our affection for him but i just as we close, and, and I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up in just a moment and to just be sort of around the room. You don't need to come all the way up front, but just to be around the room, to be available for people to say, yeah, I, I just, I want somebody else to pray for me. I want to, I want to enter into this journey of, of saying, God, there's some things I believe about you. There's some places I've grown cold, and, and I just want you to stir in me. As Aaron and I were coming back from Africa a few weeks ago, we had the chance to spend a few hours in Paris and we walked around and saw these beautiful cathedrals, I mean, we walked into Notre Dame and we're like, this is not South Fellowship Church, right? (laughs) But I'll tell you what, there's more people gathered here today than there are there. The outside looks great. The inside's grown cold. It doesn't just happen in buildings. It doesn't just happen in movements. It happens in people, too. And maybe for you, the, the outside looks great, but the inside's sort of being hollowed out, and it's grown cold. I just want to invite you to two things. One, to be honest, and then two, to be responsive. To say, God, I... If your invitation is that there's a road home here, I want to walk it. I want to walk it. So we're going to use the last few minutes of our service here to just ask God to minister. And then we're going to invite other people to minister as well. So I'm going to invite you to stand up. Or maybe you can, if you want, you can get down on your knees. I'm going to invite our prayer team and elders, to so just get in place, just, just around the sides of the room, and if you'd like somebody to pray with and for you, I'm going to encourage you in this last song to, to make that step, to say, God, I, I just, I want you to move in my heart again, to go find somebody to pray with you, but let's do some business with God, Spirit of God. It's a beautiful thing that you don't just want us to be duty-driven, robotic, perfectly behaved Christians, but that you want us to be passionately loving people. And we want that too. So would you stir us up? We're open. Would you stir us up? Would you show us where we've gone off course? Would you invite us back? We pray in the name of Jesus.